you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Bruce Friedrich, the co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute. GFI is a non-profit that works with scientists, investors, and entrepreneurs to support the development and marketing of clean, as in cell cultures, and plant-based alternatives to animal food products. And they're one of animal charity evaluators' top charities. GFI's goal, as you'll hear in the episode, is to reach a point where these products are tastier, healthier, and more affordable than their counterparts derived from animals. So there is just a convergence of reasons to think that turning animals into food on industrial scales is a really bad idea. And you've probably heard the arguments already. But of course, the arguments alone are having a hard time actually changing consumer preferences. And as Bruce mentions in the interview, no one likes hearing those uncomfortable facts about what goes into burgers. We just find ways not to think too hard about them when they're on our plates. Plus, despite the efforts of animal advocates like Peter Singer, there's no clear evidence that the number of self-identifying vegetarians and vegans has arisen over the past two decades. Which isn't to say that those writers and activists don't have a crucial role to play. It just looks like the best way to actually transform food systems away from animals is going to involve more than just repeating those ethical arguments from the sidelines. And so the Good Food Institute want to combine that moral case with market forces and food technology. The idea being that once alternative proteins reach price parity or better with animal products, as well as tasting better and being healthier, they'll just beat them at their own game. Anyway, we also discuss the inefficiencies of meat production, parallels between today's clean meat and early mobile phone technology, and how to market protein alternatives to consumers. Without further ado, here's the episode. So I started looking at the dynamics of global food, um, I suppose in the mid to late 1980s. Um, the famine in Ethiopia, um, circa 1984, I think it was, um, had a big impact on me. I was going through uh, confirmation classes at the time. Um, and just the idea that some people in one part of the world are starving while other people in another part of the world never even think about starvation um, really had an impact on me. And I, I basically committed to the idea that what I wanted to try to do um, in this, you know, the United States, the Judeo-Christian nation, um, is make sure people are fed and as the richest country in the world. It seemed, seemed like that should be really easy. Um, and obviously it wasn't really easy, but I thought politics was the solution. Um, and it turns out politics is not the solution. But um, I started getting interested in food um, then. That drove me to major as an undergraduate in economics and focusing on agricultural economics. I wrote my honors thesis after a year studying environmental economics at the London School of Economics on the structural adjustment programs, which again was a, a pretty deep dive um, into the way that food um, and agricultural production is distributed globally uh, and just how colossally broken it is. Um, and a big part of that is the inefficiency of growing massive amounts of crops for animals, feeding those crops to animals 
uh, which drives people, drives, drives subsistence farmers off their land, drives up the price of cereals for people who are starving, um, entrenches global poverty. So that was sort of how I started thinking about food. Um, I spent six years running a homeless shelter um, in a, the largest soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. from 1990 to 1996. Um, and it was during that time that I learned about animal rights um, and thinking about animal rights in the context um, of Christ's uh, call to mercy, uh, the Matthew 25 concept of Jesus casting his lot with the least of these, um, and then reading an Anglican theologian and professor at Oxford University named Andrew Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay essentially posits um, a preferential option for animals, a sort of liberation theology um, on behalf of animals that had a, a deep, deep impact on me uh, that sent me into animal protection for a bunch of years. Um, and then the Good Food Institute was a little bit of circling all the way back to my early focus on uh, agricultural economics um, and looking at structural solutions to the inefficiencies involved in growing hundreds of millions of metric tons um, of food to feed them to farm animals, even as you know, hundreds of millions of people um, are living on the, the brink of starvation. So that's a sort of long-winded, circuitous route uh, to GFI and seeing the really big picture solutions that I thought were the solution early on, um, but maybe using both economics, uh, markets, and the government to solve you know, the global food issues. Fantastic. And we will most certainly dive into this theological aspect of your thinking later on. But for now, let's just go back to the economics of growing feed for animal food products. Just give us a sense of the numbers here. How how much crop am I growing in order to feed and produce how much in the way of animal products? So a lot of people don't think that much about this, but once you, uh, it's a super intuitive concept. Once somebody mentions, you know, once somebody just explains, hey, look, uh, chickens, pigs, cattle, farmed fish, the vast majority of the calories that you feed to them they expend simply existing. So you need to grow a salmon for a couple of years on a salmon farm before you're going to slaughter uh, a salmon. And the vast majority of the fish feed, the salmon expends um, keeping himself or herself alive. Um, similarly, a chicken you have to grow for six or seven weeks before the chicken is going to be sent to slaughter. Um, and it takes nine calories in the form of feed to get one calorie back out in the form of chicken meat. Um, about half of those calories go into bits of the chicken that we're not going to eat. Um, and then even more of that goes into simply keeping the chicken alive for six or seven weeks. That is not morally different from taking eight plates of food, throwing them in the trash and eating one plate of food. Um, you or I might not be personally throwing all of that food away, but we are entering into an economic relationship uh, where nine calories of feed crops are grown in order for you or I to consume one calorie in the form of chicken meat. And chicken is the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat. So you're literally talking about nine times as much land, 
nine times as much water, nine times as many pesticides and herbicides, um, and oftentimes pesticides and herbicides that are so toxic they could not be dumped um, on crops that are going to be fed to human beings. So that is just a tremendous inefficiency inherently. And once you add it all up, I'm not sure what the current numbers are, but um, a little over a decade ago, the guy who was the global food envoy for the United Nations, uh, Jean Ziegler, French guy, he called biofuels a crime against humanity because the UNFAO released a report saying that 100 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being turned into biofuels. And a British report said that was driving up the price corn and wheat by about 30% and literally leading people to starve to death. Well, that same FAO report um, found that 756 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being fed to chickens and pigs and other farm animals. And that doesn't even include the more than 90% of the global soy crop that is fed to farm animals. So once you add up the corn, the wheat, the soy, um, a little over a decade ago, um, it was more than um, a thousand million metric tons. So more than 10 times as much as was turned into biofuel. So um, that is leading to subsistence farmers being tossed off their land. That is leading to the prices of these crops being artificially high. Uh, that is leading to uh, water wars and water scarcity. Um, just environmentally, it is it is extraordinarily inefficient, um, and it is a, a crime against humanity uh, while people are starving to funnel massive, massive, massive amounts of crops through animals so that we can eat animals when those crops should be feeding human beings. We, we've been talking about just straightforward animal ethics in other, other interviews. Um, one of the major wrongs of rearing and slaughtering animals for food is that um, those animals get to suffer. You've talked about this inefficiency, which is another wrong that maybe isn't discussed so widely. Can you briefly touch on any of the other less obvious harms of the meat industry? So things like food security, you hear about bacterial resistance, are these things worth thinking about? Yeah, I mean, at, at the Good Food Institute, we generally focus um, predominantly on three things. Uh, the first one is food security, and that's what we've been talking about. So hundreds of millions of people um, are currently living in nutritional deficit, uh, which is a euphemism that means they're starving. Uh, we're talking about things like malnutrition, wasting, stunting, uh, and other diseases based on not taking in enough basic nutrients. And we've been talking about that. Um, then there are environmental harms like destroyed oceans and climate change and soil desertification and species loss. And according to the United Nations, no matter what environmental issue you're looking at from the smallest and most local to the largest and most global, the inefficiencies that we've been talking about with regard to animal product production are one of the top three causes. And that's because it's not just the inefficiency of having to grow nine crops, nine calories of crops to get one calorie of chicken, um, and significantly worse if you're talking about things like farmed fish um, or pork or beef um, or lamb. Um, you now have to grow all of those. After you grow all those crops, you have to ship those crops to a feed mill. You have to operate a feed mill. You have to ship the feed 
to the farm, generally an industrial farm. You have to operate the farm. You have to ship the animals to a slaughterhouse. You have to operate the slaughterhouse. So environmentally, you're talking about multiple extra stages of gas guzzling, pollution spewing lorries. You're talking about multiple extra energy intensive and polluting factories. Um, I mean, even just looking at the environmental harms of abattoirs is really pretty eye-opening. And if you grow those crops and eat those crops directly or grow those crops and turn them into plant-based meat or cultivated meat, you end up with significantly less resource use, uh, multiple fewer factories required, significantly less chains of transportation, just um, even beyond the simple fact that you don't need nine calories in to get one calorie out. Once you crunch all of the inefficiency and all of the pollution, um, you look at something like climate change. And according to the journal Nature, uh, chicken, again, is the least climate change inducing animal. Um, and yet you get 40 times as much climate change per calorie of protein from chicken when compared to legumes like soy, lentils, peas, uh, and so on. So the adverse climate impact is really colossal involved in all the inefficiency of growing crops to cycle them through animals and all of the extra stages of manufacturing. Um, so that's the environmental argument. The global health argument is predominantly twofold at the macro level. Uh, the first one is antimicrobial resistance. So if any of your listeners want to scare, they should just Google antimicrobial resistance. Um, you're literally, according to the former head of the World Health Organization, looking at an end to modern medicine on our current trajectory. You're talking about you scrape your knee, it gets infected, the antibiotics don't work, they have to amputate your knee. Um, or if you let it go, um, you actually, you know, scrape knee can be uh, a death sentence in some cases. Um, and the sort of um, sky is falling nature of a lot of the reporting on this is coming from medical journals. Um, so, you know, it's not the British tabloids, it's the New England Journal of Medicine, it's the Lancet. Um, and that is because 70% of all antibiotics grown in developed economies is fed to farm animals who are not sick. Uh, it's to keep them alive in conditions that would otherwise be breeding disease. So um, we really need to get off the antibiotics. And that is going to be, um, as you will find out if you dive into this, really hard to do uh, with the current method of raising animals for food. The other global health harm is zoonotic diseases. Um, and just this past July, the United Nations Environment Program released a report about how we prevent the next COVID-19, how we prevent the next pandemic. Um, and the first likely cause of the next pandemic, they identified as animal protein consumption, um, just writ large, the idea of raising animals uh, in order to eat them. If those animals get sick, um, and they get sick with something that can jump the species barrier, uh, boom, you've got possibly your next COVID-19. Um, and it's certainly possible that it could be either more lethal or more transmissible. So COVID-19 is pretty bad, um, but it is neither as lethal nor as transmissible as it could be. And the next one could be you know, worse across both of those factors, uh, making the whole COVID-19 lockdowns and everything else. Uh, look significantly less dire than they have turned out to be. 
Um, and then the second thing they identify is intensive animal agriculture, because just inherently, if you're raising animals for food, you're, you know, and you're raising tens of billions of them as we do globally, uh, you're increasing uh, across all of those animals, the likelihood that one of them will come down with, with a virus that can uh, leap the species barrier into human beings. Um, when you put them into intensive confinement, as we do predominantly uh, in developed economies, but more and more in developing economies as well, um, you depress their immune systems, which makes it far more likely that they could get sick. Uh, the more likely they are to get sick, uh, the more likely that sickness is to jump the species barrier and, again, create um, a, something like COVID-19. So those are the predominant global health arguments. We could also talk about food poisoning sort of writ large. Um, in the United States, tens of millions of people get sick every single year from contaminated meat. Um, more than 100,000 end up in the hospital from contaminated meat. Thousands die from contaminated meat. Um, but that strikes us as significantly less, well, it is significantly less problematic uh, than something like antibiotic resistance um, or zoonotic diseases. Um, so that's food security, that's uh, environmentalism, that's global health. Um, and then you nodded at uh, the animal protection issues. At GFI, we tend to focus on those first three. Um, and the reason for that is we are generally looking to influence governments and corporations and scientists uh, and foundations that fund scientists. Um, so there are a lot of people trying to figure out how we prevent the next pandemic, how we keep antibiotics working, what we do about preserving oceans, what we do um, about climate change, how we feed 10 billion people by 2050. Um, and our main focus is incentivizing governments to fund this work, incentivizing the current food and meat industries uh, to change the way they produce meat, um, and incentivizing the scientific community to put their talents uh, into remaking meat. So those tend to be our focuses. Um, animal protection is another really good reason to make these changes, but there's not nearly the sort of institutional focus um, on animal protection. So we tend not to focus as much on it. So we've laid out these, as you said, three key problem areas that you are looking to tackle. And, um, you know, these are clearly very shocking and, and very uh, concerning. Um, so let's maybe try and shift to something a bit more optimistic, which is the solutions we have to all of this. Uh, you've hinted at this already at the kind of work that GFI does. Um, but can you explain uh, briefly, perhaps, what your theory of change is and what are the kind of core areas that you're working on um, to, to bring about this transition from bad food to good food? Yeah, absolutely. So what appears to be true um, is that lots and lots of people are vaguely or even more than vaguely aware of everything that we just talked about. Uh, people know that abattoirs and industrial farms are not pleasant places for animals, and people legitimately care about animal welfare. Um, people are learning about the global health, food security, and environmental harms of industrial animal agriculture. And pretty much everybody cares about those three things. Um, but we appear as human beings to be hardwired to focus when we're making food choices exclusively on physiological well-being, um, which is to say, and, and as many people have talked about, um, our, body, our bodies no longer respond from a health standpoint in quite the way that they should because we've been programmed to be 
worried about famine for kind of all of being human beings. Um, but that's a that's a less important concern. The main thing is, so Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, the Nobel Laureate in Economics. And he lays out systems one thinking and system two thinking. System one thinking is the sort of instinctive focus on physiological needs. System two thinking is the larger sort of um, higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, thinking about things like self-actualization and ethics. Uh, where food is concerned, for the vast majority of people, even in developed economies, food is system one thinking. Um, is it delicious? Will it sustain me? Does it have a lot of calories? Is it reasonably priced? Um, that is what dictates consumer choice for literally everybody. Um, and then a small uh, group of cohort of people will also, um, if they are um, well-fed enough, if they don't have other physiological needs, they might incorporate ethics. But it is a vanishingly small number of people who incorporate ethics. Um, and even in developed economies, like in the United States, uh, per capita meat consumption in 2019 was the highest it has been in recorded history. Uh, 2019 is also for sure the year when the highest percentage of Americans understood the external costs of industrial animal agriculture. Uh, but people just keep eating more and more meat. Um, and globally, meat consumption is skyrocketing. The United Nations says we're going to have to produce uh, somewhere on the order of 70% more meat than we're producing today by 2050. Um, so environmentalists, global health experts, animal protectionists, begging the public to eat less meat for decades has not stemmed the tide. Uh, and we need a solution that doesn't just work where we have maximum educational capacity. So it can't just work uh, in the UK, in Germany, in the United States. I mean, I would say that the educational experiment has failed even in those places. Uh, but to the degree that we think convincing people, each individual person by person, to eat less or no meat um, that has failed, even in the areas where we have the maximum ability to make those points with people. Uh, but this solution needs to work in rural China. It needs to work in the developing economies where we don't have the capacity to make these sort of educational pleas. Um, so at the Good Food Institute, we think the solution is remaking meat instead of remaking human decision making, essentially. Uh, and this boils down to the fact that meat is made up of, it's made up of lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. That is all meat is. Uh, plants have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water too. Um, we can biomimic meat with plants if we hire the right scientists, but we need to hire tissue engineers. We need to hire um, chemical engineers. We need to hire mechanical engineers. We need to hire meat scientists and plant biologists. Um, and probably everybody listening, um, either you're aware of this concept already, but if you're not aware of the concept, you're probably thinking, well, I had a veggie burger and it wasn't very good. Um, this is a new way of thinking, essentially, about the veggie burger. This is uh, instead of making products for people who are vegetarians or vegans that aren't quite as good, uh, this is let's actually hire the scientists to make the products that consumers cannot tell the difference because nobody is eating meat because they want to see all of these external costs. People are eating meat exclusively because it's delicious and it's reasonably priced and they think it's healthy. Um, we can give people the same level of delicious. We can do it more efficiently. So as it scales up, it'll cost less. 
um, and we can do it in a way that is safer for them and their families. So that's the plant-based side. For people who just absolutely want to eat actual animal meat, uh, and we think there are probably going to be quite a few of those, uh, we can grow that meat directly from cells. We can cultivate that meat in the same way that you might cultivate plants. So instead of all of the efficiency of growing massive amounts of crops and feeding it to animals so that, so that the animal's cells multiply and grow, um, instead, let's feed the cells directly. Let's not grow any of the bits of the animal that are not edible, and let's not waste the calories that go into causing those cells to multiply and grow. Let's not waste that on keeping animals alive and you know walking around in sheds or whatever. Let's grow the cells directly. So chicken is the quickest animal to go from shell to abattoir. It takes six to seven weeks to grow a chicken to slaughter weight. If you grow the cells directly, you can get that same growth in a matter of a few days. So a far more efficient way of making meat. Um, and the great thing is no chance of zoonotic disease, no need for antibiotics, a fraction of the climate change, a fraction of the land use, a fraction of the water use um, can far more easily feed the 10 billion people who are expected to be on the planet by 2050 um, and no animal slaughter required at all. So that's the GFI theory of change. And we have three programmatic areas uh, that we focus on. One is um, policy. The primary goal is convincing governments that for the same reason they fund open access science on agriculture writ large um, and fund renewable energy open access research and fund global health open access research. Um, they should be funding the research that will allow us to divorce meat from the need for industrial animal agriculture. Um, and then we work with corporations to help them recognize, you know, we don't want this to be disruption of the meat industry or the food industry. We want it to be transformation of those industries. Um, so helping them to recognize this as a huge opportunity to talk about their commitment to sustainability, to talk about their commitment to global health. Um, as they go all in on the plant-based and the cultivated meat side of things. Uh, and then our science and technology department, we have a dozen PhDs working for GFI. Um, I'm not sure there are any PhDs working in this area for any other nonprofit organizations. I think there aren't, um, but there, if there are, there are not many. Um, and I think it's zero. Um, and the sort of focus of science of our science and technology department is twofold. Uh, part one is let's open access this science. Um, up until GFI, there was no technological readiness assessment on the plant-based or the cultivated side of things. So what do we know? What do we know we don't know? Where are the areas of exploration where we need a lot more work? So sort of mapping that out, figuring out the white spaces, and then methodically filling those white spaces is a big part of it. Um, and then if you talk to any of the startups in plant-based meat or cultivated meat, they will tell you that their number one sort of problem as they get bigger is finding the scientists to hire to do this work. Um, so we have what we call our alt-protein project on university campuses, um, including the two top ag schools in the world, uh, Wageningen University in the Netherlands and UC Davis um, in uh, California. Um, and then I think uh, six or seven additional schools and the goal is all of the next generation of best tissue engineers and all those other scientific endeavors I was talking about, making sure that the, the people um, who will be the next generation of scientists recognizes remaking meat as a really great career vocational trajectory uh, where they can do very well for them and their families. And they can also, you know, essentially save the world. There's a lot to unpack here. 
uh, and hopefully we'll get the chance to, to delve into all of it. But one thing I want to ask first is uh, unpacking this idea of plant-based alternatives a bit more. So you mentioned that this has to be a solution that works everywhere, um, from New York City to rural China. Um, but right now, when I think of things like the Impossible Burger, I think of these very trendy, very hipster, very pricey uh, meat substitutes. Why is this the area that you're focusing on, uh, as opposed to um, explicitly targeting, let's say, um, developing to middle income countries uh, like India, for example, which has uh, already a very large uh, and significant proportion of vegetarians and vegans who are already eating a plant-based diet. What is the need for these new products um, when we have examples of success elsewhere already? Um, well, I wouldn't say we have examples of success elsewhere already. Um, India is taking up a huge portion of the increased annual uh, meat consumption uh, per capita meat consumption uh, in India, as in the rest of the developing economies, is essentially skyrocketing. Um, and there are a lot of initiatives in India focused on moving from um, subsistence animal farming to intensive animal farming. And um, we are very active um, in India. We have There are GFI affiliates um, in India, Israel, Brazil, Asia Pacific, Europe, um, and then our, our home office, um, of course, is in the United States. Um, and one of the great things about, about GFI's general theory of change um, is that science in Brazil, done by the Brazilian Agricultural Research Service called Embrapa, when they do science on plant-based meat, uh, that science can be used all over the world. So the United States is just 4% of the global population, but the science that we are doing um, at UC Davis um, or other universities um, in the UK or the United States or wherever, that science can be used globally because science is a, a global language. Um, and similarly, when we convince uh, the US government to put money um, into open access science, one of our top goals is getting $20 million allocated um, in 2021 to open access all protein research, uh, that research will be able to be used globally. So Beyond Meat actually started as a university project at the University of Missouri. Uh, Beyond Meat is now selling all over the world. It's just one example. So the solution ends up being a global solution. Um, it is the case that right now, while we're in early R&D, as always with early R&D, that's going to start with the people who can afford to pay for early R&D. Uh, but you look at something like cell phone technology. Uh, and India specifically. Uh, India is the nation that basically leap, re, leapfrogged landlines for subsistence farmers in India and subsistence farmers in Africa, for that matter. Um, early cell phones were bought, um, obviously, by exclusively the very wealthy um, when they were initially introduced. And over time, as they scaled up, the price came down and down and down. Uh, and now cell phones are one of the, the great um, tools of moving people out of dire poverty um, and into something that allows them to feed themselves and their families. So um, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google um, and CEO of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, he was speaking at the Milken Global Summit two or three years ago, and he was asked to talk about uh, technologies that will improve life for humanity by a factor of at least tenfold in this fairly near future. And the first thing he talked about was plant-based meat. Um, and not, you know, not so you and I can have 
the Impossible Burger or, you know, some uh, trendy food. It was for the capacity of turning plants into meat to provide high quality nutrition to the global poor specifically. Just a far more efficient way of delivering protein to people. Um, and it's just a fact that people in developing economies, as their economies become more wealthy, they are going to want to eat meat. Uh, this is a way of allowing them to do that, uh, but without the same external cost of industrial animal meat as it's produced today. So um, our managing director for India, a guy named uh, Varun Deshpande, he talks about creating uh, leapfrog for food uh, in India. So basically the same thing that happened with cell technology, uh, people in rural India who have never eaten meat, but who want to eat meat, uh, going directly from not eating meat to eating plant-based meat instead of animal-based meat with all of the harms that come with that. That's a really interesting comment. And I think you're really right to, to point out that um, developing countries are increasing their, their meat consumption to a large degree because they now have the money to be able to afford it as well. And this causes uh, like some self-reflection, um, I think, in myself as well, which I would love to, to hear your kind of thoughts on that. When I talk to my grandparents, for example, and we kind of have this generational discussion of meat, um, I mean, we often think, right, like vegetarianism, veganism are these very young movements. But when you talk to, to older people as well um, in, in Europe who kind of grew up in these uh, post-war times as well, meat was a very scarce resource. And this idea of eating meat every day um, or several times a day for, for several meals as well is something very new um, and something very unusual as well that we here in the West uh, might feel um, as ordinary or as normalized um, to, to be eating meat um, several times a day, um, but is really a huge privilege of where we are living and what time we're living in as well. I think that view is absolutely correct. But the thing to underline about that is it has been thoroughly normalized for me, for you, for people um, really probably under 60, the amount of meat that we eat now, um, which is something like 100 kilograms a year, um, whereas 75 years ago, it would have been a tiny fraction of that. And again, it goes up year after year after year. Um, that is despite the fact that we know about all of the harms, um, and that has now become thoroughly normalized. You look at areas of the world where they're eating a tenth or a twentieth that much meat, that is only because that's all they can afford. Um, as the world gets wealthier, they aren't going to stop at half our per capita meat consumption or a fifth of our per capita meat consumption or whatever, they will, like humans everywhere and humans for all of time, uh, eat as much meat as they possibly can. So it's really incumbent upon us to make that meat in a way that doesn't have all of the external costs, that doesn't have the adverse impact um, across the various environmental factors, that doesn't have the adverse global health impact, that isn't so uh, radically inefficient uh, and that doesn't cause animals to suffer uh, as much as, as meat production does today. Uh, I'm curious just to hear what this research that you're talking about looks like in practice. So just speak to the, the listener who maybe tried corn five or six years ago, thought it tasted a bit like cardboard and hasn't really checked in since. Um, tell us about any you know specific technologies or breakthroughs that we've been seeing in the last couple of years, or maybe you're excited to see in the next few years too. 
what are the kinds of things that people should be paying attention to? So, I mean, I guess the one thing to say is uh, at GFI, we have a biweekly newsletter that people should sign up for. Uh, we also have, I send out monthly highlights every month that people can shoot me an email and I would be uh, more than happy to get you added to that list. There is an overwhelming amount of exciting work happening um, across, there's plant-based meat, which is biomimicking meat with plants. Um, the two sort of um, trendsetters in that are Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Um, Ethan Brown and Pat Brown, no relations. Um, cultivated meat, there are now probably 60 different companies that are growing meat directly from cells. Um, that is the exact same product and it tastes uh, identical and is biologically and nutritionally identical. Um, and then what corn does is actually not technically plant-based. It's whole biomass fermentation. Um, and there are other companies jumping on to that bandwagon as well, which is pretty exciting. I think um, corn is the largest of the alternative protein companies at the moment, although I imagine uh, Beyond might surpass them and Impossible might surpass them in, in fairly short order. Uh, but corn has been sort of uh, the dominant player for quite a while. Um, and they've been doing that marketing to vegetarians and flexitarians. So one of the really exciting things about what Impossible and Beyond are doing is that other companies are upping their game. So we were talking to one of the larger plant-based meat companies in the United States, and they were saying, you know, our goal used to be uh, to compete with Boca Burger and Tofurky, uh, and now our goal is to compete with Impossible and Beyond, because they recognize that their market isn't the tiny segment of the population that wants meat alternatives, which is to say alternatives to meat that maybe cost a little bit more and don't taste quite as good. Uh, their market is meat eaters. Their market is everybody. Uh, because with the right product formulation, they can actually give people the exact sensory experience of meat, uh, but healthier and without all of those external costs. So that is extremely exciting um, on the plant-based side, on the whole biomass fermentation side. Uh, and then cultivated is going to take a little bit longer. Um, we're trying to cut that um, time frame by getting a lot more resources devoted to it through our work with governments. Uh, but no matter what, I mean, just just even getting the infrastructure built up, it's going to take a little while to get anything anywhere near uh, price parity. But I, I think all of it is just insanely, insanely exciting. It's a really um, fun time to be focused on what I think is just absolutely the solution to some pretty big global harms. This uh, leads us on quite nicely to a question we've actually got submitted from a listener called uh, Prabhat Soni. Um, are you more optimistic about the future of plant-based meat or cell-based meat and why? People ask us this question a lot, and it's just very hard for me right now where alternatives to industrial animal meat make up less than half of 1% by volume, even in developed economies and 0% everywhere else, um, and where cultivated meat has not come onto the market at all. Um, it's really tough to know what consumers are going to get most enthusiastic about. So um, I'm very optimistic about both technologies. I mean, we have multiple plant-based products that satisfy consumers from a sensory experience now. Uh, they do need to scale up and become even more efficient so that they can compete um, on a price basis. I mean, that's really the holy grail. The products need to 
in order to fulfill their potential. They need to taste the same or better and cost the same or less. Um, but we see the trajectory pretty clearly now on the plant-based side. Uh, the cultivated meat side is a little less clear, a little more speculative, and a little further out. Uh, but it won't surprise me if in you know, 20 years you've got uh, both products cost less and if cultivated meat has essentially lapped plant-based because that's what consumers are demanding, I won't be surprised. And I guess similar to the uh, normal meat market is you kind of have this huge price and quality range as well, right? From McDonald's to, to Wagyu uh, meat. There's no reason, right, why there wouldn't also be this range of plant-based alternatives that could compete, as you said, on, on every level. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, fun and exciting um, in particular on the plant-based side is they are not, and I, and I guess on the cultivated meat side too, they're not constrained by the physiology of the animals involved. So um, on the plant-based side, they are going to become more and more efficient and using a wider range of ingredients. Um, so, I mean, think about things like soy milk and oat milk uh, and almond milk. When you do taste tests with those products against animal milk, uh, the plant-based milks consistently win. Um, and it's not this product tastes the same, it's this product tastes better. Um, so we have the capacity to do that with plant-based meat as well. We're not there yet, um, but they can get to parity um, where the two products are indistinguishable and they can keep tweaking such that consumers actually prefer the plant-based, um, which is obviously something that you can't go beyond the limited range of working with animals who are physiological beings. You can't change the basic constituent parts um, of the meat very much, uh, which isn't true on the plant-based side. Um, and then on the cultivated meat side, it's worth remembering that we domesticated a very small number of animals. And we're now eating um, chicken and beef and pork and lamb, um, not because these are the meats that consumers have deemed tastiest. Um, we're eating them because these are the animals who are easiest to domesticate. Um, so with cultivated meat, you know, who knows, maybe people will turn out to really like um, some wide range of other species better. Um, and it will be just as easy uh, to cultivate those cells uh, as it is to cultivate chicken or beef or pork cells, which is also pretty exciting. It sounds to me like there are at least two challenges here. One is just developing the technology and doing the research, um, but that wouldn't be worth much if you can't change minds and market the products you end up with. So I guess the first question is just what are the biggest challenges that you're currently facing in terms of changing consumers' minds and getting them to um, start thinking about buying plant-based alternatives? I really don't see this as an issue. Um, I definitely and absolutely don't see it as an issue once we hit the products that taste the same or better and cost the same or less. Even on the cultivated meat side, when you ask people, you know, would you eat in vitro meat or would you eat lab-grown meat, the worst polls, even framing it in the most unappetizing way possible, um, you still got somewhere on the order of 30% of people will consume it. Um, once you give people even a modicum 
of information and you refer to it as, as cultivated meat or cultured meat or cell-based meat, uh, the numbers go north of 70%. Um, and when you ask people, uh, the people who say no, why they said no, they say things like, I'm afraid it's going to cost too much. I'm afraid it's not going to taste good enough. Like there's not a visceral negative reaction in the vast majority of people. Um, and this is years before the product is even on the market. Um, I don't think we're going to have any trouble pitching these products. And um, even before the products are at taste the same or better and cost the same or less, uh, we're seeing the companies that are thinking in the way that we're talking about right now, uh, we're seeing their sales spike. So the Impossible and the Beyond Burger generally cost about 30% more um, than their animal-based equivalents. And yet both of these companies are just knocking um, sales out of the park uh, because people are very enthusiastic about trying this new way of making meat. Um, and those products are only going to get better and their cost is only going to come down. So I just don't think we're going to have marketing issues. And a big part of that is we're not asking people to think about food differently. We're not asking people to make different decisions when they make their food choices. Um, we're just making the options significantly better and without all of the harms. Can you say a bit more about these uh, consumer research studies that GFI has been funding? Was there some finding from any of these that uh, actually surprised you or challenged what you thought would come out of them? I mean, I, I've been consistently surprised by the enthusiasm um, of consumers for cultivated meat and also for plant-based meat. Um, and I've been enthused um, and encouraged by those numbers globally. So the numbers in places like India and China are extremely high. Uh, the number in the United States is extremely high as well. I mean, remember that, that plant-based meat right now uh, by volume is about half of 1%. In the United States, I would guess that, you know, maybe it's a little higher in the UK, but probably it's lower every place but the United States and the UK. So you get 30% of people saying they would pay more for cultivated meat, and they're, you know, generally calling it lab grown or in vitro. The really remarkable thing about that is physiologically, we are programmed to be afraid of novel foods. So the idea of making meat in a new and better way. Uh, for most people, they're just going to hear different. But people are aware enough um, of the harms of industrial animal agriculture that they, again, it's back to something I said earlier, um, they are eating meat right now, not because of how it's produced, but despite how it's produced. Um, people are enthusiastic. And the, and the thing that's most remarkable is they are enthusiastic for years before there's a product for them to try. So once we have the product's on shelves. And once you have the two products side by side, right now, people might have a vague sense of some of the external costs we've been talking about. Uh, but once you have two products and people are confronted uh, with this product has all of these benefits, this product has all of these harms, um, a lot of people will pay more for the product that's safer and has the benefits. Um, and that will get us to the economies of scale um, such that you'll get the products so that they're equally priced and then the healthier and better product will eventually even cost less. So one thing that I wanted to pick up on is that throughout our conversation so far, we've actually been using a lot of words almost interchangeably. So we've talked about cultivated meat, we've talked about clean meat, uh, lab-grown meat. There's all these different words for the same product. And this has an effect for 
consumers, right? Um, can you talk a bit about what words you feel um, resonate more with consumers and which do less? The words that resonate the most for consumers from the ones we have tested um, and that others have tested um, are clean meat and slaughter-free meat. Uh, those pretty consistently outperform everything else from a consumer enthusiasm vantage. Uh, but at GFI, um, we are very excited to work with the incumbent meat industry. Um, we see the largest meat and food companies in the world uh, as partners in this transformation. Um, and they are not enthusiastic um, about what they see as the implication of clean meat. And it's, it's interesting, when we first um, started talking about clean meat, uh, the CEO of Cargill was referring to it as clean meat, everybody at USDA, and we weren't framing it as um, present meat production is dirty. We were framing it as clean meat in the same way that you've got clean energy. And the incumbent energy is moving toward renewables or clean energy. Uh, and we want the incumbent meat industry to move toward more environmentally sustainable ways of producing the exact same product, clean meat. Um, it wasn't what we meant, but you can certainly understand um, people inferring that if you're talking about clean meat, you're uh, implying that other meat is dirty. Um, so we don't use clean meat uh, because some of our partners prefer not to use clean meat. So then within the context of the terms that work, it was pretty much narrowed down to cultivated, cell-based, and cultured. Um, people who want to see the, the numbers on this and the consumer science on this, you go to gfi.org up slash cultivated meat. Uh, you'll get some of it. And if you go to cultivate meat, you'll get the rest of it. Let's talk a bit about policy. Um, so yeah, a lot of people point to cases where policy and government incentives um, at least seem to unfairly benefit animal industries. So like through weird regulation or subsidies and so on. Um and then one approach would be to kick up a fuss about those things and basically like push back against the meat industry, right? Like cutting those subsidies or trying to pass stricter welfare legislation or something. Um, and my understanding is that GFI might be taking a different track. So can you say something about the like major policy goals and areas that GFI is focusing on? So GFI really tries to focus on policy work that the incumbent meat industry is not going to oppose. So um, our biggest policy goal is steering open access research and development dollars uh, into biomimicking meat with plants and growing meat directly from cells. That helps the incumbent meat industry. So uh, again, back to something I said earlier, um, we really want JBS, Tyson, Cargill, all of the global meat giants we want them to see this as something that they also want to have a stake in. Um, sorry for the pun. Um, and that they are enthusiastic about. Um, and so far, that looks like that's happening. So uh, JBS is the world's largest meat company. They have um, a plant-based line. Um, Tyson, Smithfield, Hormel, um, all of the biggest meat companies in the world um, are launching their own plant-based products. And two of the three biggest meat companies in the world um, have invested in multiple cultivated meat startup companies, which 
Um, as probably most of your listeners know, that oftentimes leads to an acquisition. That's how startups generally, they either exit at IPO or they exit by acquisition from a bigger company. Um, we are super enthusiastic um, about Tyson and Cargill, um, either putting their own research scientists on um, plant-based and cultivated meat um, or making investments in buying out um, and then ramping up the distribution um, of various startups, including cultivated meat startups. There's also a lot of activity happening behind the scenes um, of startups interacting with, um, on both the plant-based and the cultivated side, um, the big food companies to come up with products that they work on together. Um, seeing Cargill launch KFC's plant-based chicken in China, uh, I thought was one of the more exciting things to happen in 2020. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. And assuming we do, uh, then it's not really in the interest of the incumbent meat industry um, to stand in the way of what we consider to be our number one policy goal. Um, so GFI doesn't generally work on things that others who are opposing the industrial animal meat industry will work on. So people will try to eliminate subsidies for the meat industry, or they'll try to eliminate the collusion across agencies and industry that you were pointing toward and um, lots of other things, which considering the industry's strength, um, whether good things to do or not, um, are probably impossible. Um, so not a great use of time and energy from attractability vantage, um, even if they were a great use of, of time and energy from an importance advantage. But um, we're not, you know, we're not involved in any of that. Um, and our hope and expectation is that what it is we're focused on, uh, the conventional food and meat industries will continue to see as opportunity uh, rather than threat. If I kind of like reflect on what we've discussed so far, we've mentioned that technology is making these incredible steps that uh, consumers are generally on board and that meat companies are showing some real interest in adopting this themselves then. Um, how reliant can we be that if we just kind of follow these market trends through then, that society will naturally transition in large part to these plant-based alternatives? And if not, um, if there is a market failure that government needs to address, what does government need to do or what would you hope that government does outside of maybe allocating more funding here and there to these research projects? Yeah, I and mean, we've got a team of people working on what we're calling advancing solutions in alternative proteins. Um, and so we did interviews with about 120 um, folks who are deeply embedded, um, mostly in startups, but we also talked to people at places like Cargill and JBS um, to figure out, you know, you've probably heard of the concept of the pre-mortem. Um, so the endeavor failed. Why did it fail? Let's say, you know, let's shoot ourselves 15 years into the future and answer that question. Um, and then from there, we figure out what do we need to do to remove the roadblocks that uh, might cause the endeavor to fail. Um, so we produce um, a bunch of documents that are looking at um, what are the roadblocks, what are the ways that we remove the roadblocks, um, and then methodically moving forward to do those things. Um, one of the most exciting things, I mean, we, we just started working on this endeavor uh, this year, uh, but already the top agricultural university in the world, which is Wageningen University, has put together a funding proposal to the Dutch government that incorporates a bunch of the ideas 
that we have suggested need to be solved. Um, it's very much like renewable energy. So you could ask the question, um, will renewable energy replace conventional energy sort of no matter what over time? Um, maybe, uh, but it certainly warrants an awful lot of people because of the value, because of the, the positive impact um, of that replacement. We do want to get governments involved um, in making sure that it happens. So we don't have the infrastructure yet. Um, the meat in infrastructure has come into being over many years. The slaughterhouses exist. The factories exist. The infrastructure exists. The, the machinery, for that matter, um, exists. So it's going to be a heavy lift to go from where we are now, um, globally, probably, you know, one fiftieth of one percent of the meat industry is plant-based and zero percent is cultivated. Um, it's going to require uh, incentives from governments um, and probably significant R&D incentives, but also uh, business incentives are something that we're, we're looking at um, and creating a package of incentives. We do think we're early enough days that the basic science is probably the most important. Um, we don't know what the cultivators are going to look like. Um, we don't know what the end manufacturing is going to look like for plant-based meat at the scale that we need to be producing it. Uh, there are certainly still efficiency gains on the plant-based meat side across all of the various um, types of meat. Um, so all of that is still being worked out. Um, and that is the, the primary goal um, of both our policy and our SciTech department. Um, and honestly, that's a big part of what we're trying to do in corporate engagement as well, is, is create the startups that answer and solve these problems, um, as well as getting the major food corporations to put significant portions of their R&D budgets uh, into solving these problems. Thinking about GFI's impact then, um, one of our listeners, Michael St. Jules, asked, where do you think plant-based and cultured alternatives would be now or decades in the future with and without GFI? What is the counterfactual impact you think GFI has? Um, I love that question. Um, I will say um, GFI is more than any other organization I'm aware of focused on metrics. So um, we have literally, since I started working on the organization, uh, produced for public consumption monthly highlight reports uh, that tell people exactly what we're accomplishing and how we're accomplishing it. Um, we had our first strategic plan within about six months of our existence, uh, which again tells people exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, people who want to dive into the most recent version can go to gfi.org slash plan. Um, it was just updated in August. Uh, people who want to get our monthly reports can email me and I'll add you to the list. Um, everything that GFI does plugs into one of six objects. We use the, 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 the KPI system that Google popularized called OKRs. Um, so GFI has a North Star. We have six objectives, all of which roll up into our North Star. Um, each objective has between five and nine key results, which are the measurable things that we are um, attempting to accomplish on an annual basis. Um, we measure our progress toward those goals on a quarterly basis. So uh, we just finished grading quarter three. Um, I think if you look back at where we were five years ago and compare that to where we are today, um, five years ago, no major corporations, um, none of the major meat corporations have plant-based uh, products now. The top five do. 
Um, our work with these corporations tends to be under NDA, but I will say that um, Purdue um, at the GFI conference said they were three years further along than they would have been without GFI. Um, and we get emails from people at these uh, corporations saying this would not have happened uh, without GFI. Um, you look at things like Ag Funder News um, said that every startup they talked to talked about GFI being uh, dispositive in their success. I think it's safe to say um, some of the biggest food companies would not be invested. Um, it's definitely the case that most of the money that's been allocated by governments would not have been allocated. So we just had the first um, money for cultivated meat from the U.S. government, um, $3.5 million uh, to UC Davis. And the researchers said this stemmed out of conversations from GFI. Um, so across policy, across corporate engagement, and then science, um, we have been publishing open access scientific work uh, that has gotten lots and lots of, of scientists invested and involved. Um, and then we've also funded about $8 million um, of research directly. Um, that would not have happened, obviously, if we had not funded it. Um, and you can check out all of that at gfi.org slash research grants. Um, and you can read all of that work in their uh, publishing journal articles and, and basically creating a scientific um, community where there wasn't one. If you're up for it, um, I would really love to hear a bit more about your story and what led you to caring about these issues. And in particular, can you say something about the influence of your Christian faith in leading you to the, the work you do? Uh, and also, are there like books or lessons that stand out from that story? For me, um, when I was confirmed, um, we studied Matthew 25. Um, and there's a story in Matthew 25 in which Jesus basically, it's the one time Jesus talks about what it means to be saved. Um, and he says explicitly, it has nothing to do with what you say you believe. Um, it has to do with whether you cast your lot with what he describes as the least of these. So he says explicitly, did you feed the hungry? Did you house the homeless? Did you visit the sick and imprisoned? Did you clothe the naked? Um, so that's the barometer of what it means to lead a faithful life. And then you look at the famine in Ethiopia, which was the, sort of the thing that caused me to wonder if I, you know, if, if what Christianity meant was Sunday church attendance, um, was outward shows of devotion, or was what Christianity meant um, actually figuring out who are today's most oppressed um, and casting your lot with them? Uh, the answer is obvious. Uh, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, Jesus says, which is a very EA kind of, uh, kind of problem. That we got. But long, long before uh, earning to give, Jesus was encouraging people to earn to give. Yeah, so that, that was the thing that did it for me, that and a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And Diet for a Small Planet makes the points we were discussing earlier, especially about food security, especially about growing massive amounts of crops to feed them to animals instead of allowing human beings to consume those crops. So um, it was basically sort of all of that that got me thinking about food systems and, and pointed me in the direction um, of caring about industrial animal meat. Um, I was running a homeless shelter in a soup kitchen in inner city Washington, D.C., um, 
very uh, had already been organizing fasts to raise money for Oxfam International in terms of global poverty. Uh, read a book by uh, Andrew Lindsay, who we talked about a little bit ago. And basically, Lindsay posits that for our times, um, animals qualify as the least of these. So basically, uh, extrapolating from Jesus' story in Matthew 25 to today, um, other animals are made of flesh and blood and bone, just like human beings are. Um, they are more like us than they are unlike us. Uh, they have the capacity for cognition. They have the capacity for emotion. Um, and what is happening to them on modern farms and in modern slaughterhouses um, is beyond most of our worst, the worst moments of our lives. Um, maybe occasionally we have uh, moments that are as bad as every waking moment for a battery chicken, uh, but probably not. And it's rare. And that's their entire existence. So uh, Lindsay posits that this is a moral issue uh, for Christians and Catholics where we should be on the lines, uh, not in the bleachers. Okay, two quick questions to finish up. The first one is, what significant thing have you changed your mind about and why? Finn Editing here, I should just mention for context that we recorded this question shortly after the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And also the slight change of tone is because we recorded these last questions a few days after the others. So there is just an overwhelming amount of political discussion in the United States right now. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about how the Supreme Court in the United States works um, and how different it is from any place else um, in the world. And I have a law degree from Georgetown. So the arguments weren't entirely novel to me, and I imagine I had to engage with them um, writing papers um, and also um, in some of my uh, exams. But um, listening to Amy Coney Barrett, who is currently um, up to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, um, just sort of uh, talking about the concept of super precedent. Um, and she mentioned Marbury versus Madison as one of the super precedents. Um, and the person um, I was watching this with was like Marbury versus Madison. Um, and it's just, uh, it's fascinating how few people realize that the Supreme Court gave itself the power to interpret the Constitution. Um, and that's the Marbury versus Madison case in 1803. Um, John Marshall just was like, yeah, we'll do this. Um, and it's not in the Constitution. And I think something like no other country um, says, you know, yes, you have X number of, of uh, democratically elected legislators. And yes, you have a democratically elected president. Um, and they don't get to determine whether a law is thoroughly invalidated by being unconstitutional. Uh, these seven people, which is also not a number in the Constitution, uh, they get to determine. And I think especially among, well, probably progressive and old school conservatives, there's just this view, because this is how it's been since 1803, uh, that obviously this is true um, and probably not as much willingness to grapple with the implications 
Um, so th- that's one thing. Um, there's also been a lot more conversation recently about what it means that D.C. is not a state, despite being more populist than probably, I think, something like seven or eight U.S. states. Um, and the Republican Party has done a phenomenal job of certainly causing me to think that there would it would somehow not be playing fair. Um, it, it's a pretty. It would be a pretty easy thing if the Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the presidency to just get say, yeah, DC is a state, um, and that would help to make the U.S. less anti-democratic. Uh, and yet, there is uh, a general sense which I have shared until recently that, of course, we wouldn't do something um, as unethical as that. And it's just <laughs> diametrically the opposite of what I and I think um, up until probably a month ago, uh, the vast majority of even um, progressives and Democrats um, believed to be true about this issue. There's some other things just in the political discourse. It's, it's kind of funny how uh, Donald Trump pulling the political discourse so far to the right has sort of opened up some dialogues on the left. Um, I'm pretty politically aware. I'm kind of uh, hyper attentive uh, to politics. And like, this is the first time that some fairly basic and obvious things are even considered to be acceptable for mainstream political discourse in ways that are sort of interesting. So the last question to wrap things up are what are three books or articles or other pieces of media that you would recommend for listeners who are interested to find out about everything we've talked about here? So Paul Shapiro, uh, the CEO and founder of the company Better Meat Co, um, has a phenomenal book called Clean Meat uh, that I think uh, does a really nice job um, of looking at sort of the intricacies and the history um, and the sort of theory of change represented by GFI. Um, It's not exactly about the issues that we're discussing here, but I think Steven Pinker's um, Enlightenment Now is pretty spectacularly good for helping to give more of a snapshot um, into the degree to which we should all be significantly less despondent than I think a lot of people are. Um, the idea that this is sort of a, a blip rather than, um, yeah, I mean, it, it basically it basically makes the case, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, and I think especially the mainstream progressive moment a lot of people are screaming somewhat hysterically about the state of the world in ways that I think are not tethered to reality. Um, and I think Enlightenment Now does a really nice job um, of laying out uh, the counterpoint to that. And Pinker has taken some hits for that, and I think they're uh, not valid. I think anything by Yuval Harari um, so, I mean, GFI's theory of change, obviously, is products that cost the same or less and taste the same or better. We need, you know, it's a steep climb. But once we get there, those products will simply replace industrial animal meat. 
And I think Harari's way of sort of looking at the world is some useful background for that way of thinking and that theory of change. So probably those three books. Yeah. And Harari himself is a vegan, right? Um, He is a vegan. He writes um, about this. Um, He has recorded videos in favor of GFI's theory of change. Um, and he wrote the he wrote the uh, the foreword um, to Shapiro's book, the Israeli edition uh, in Hebrew um, of Clean Meat by Paul Shapiro. So yeah, um, I don't think he well I don't, I don't think he addresses this in either of his sort of um, in Homo uh, Duas. I, I avoided naming it because I'm sure I'm mispronouncing the second word. Uh, but a brief history of tomorrow, which I think is just a, a spectacularly good book, and then of course *Sapiens*, uh, the previous, the precursor book. Um, and I'm really feel, feeling a little unoriginal because those are both um, top books for Bill Gates too. But um, I think he's, uh, I think he's right about both of them. Not my company to be in. Okay, finally, finally, uh, where can people find you online, and where can people learn more about GFI? Um, people can find out more about GFI at just gfi.org. That's our website, gfi.org. Um, people can find out, can, can sign up for our biweekly newsletter there. If people would like to receive our monthly reports, they are welcome to email me directly. Uh, with our new website, we will make it um, automated. But for now, you have to email somebody at GFI. Um, and if you would like to get our monthly highlights, please do email me. Um, and it's brucef at gfi.org. Bruce Friedrich, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I really enjoyed it. That was Bruce Friedrich on Clean Meat and the Good Food Institute. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Bruce. There you'll find links to all the books and reports Bruce mentioned, along with a load more information about what the Good Food Institute does and ways to get involved in the world of clean meat. If you enjoyed this, or at least found it interesting, uh, we're on a bit of a roll with episodes about animals and food right now, so you might want to check out our last two episodes, that is number 19 with Peter Singer, and number 20 with Leia Edgerton and Manya Gardner. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form, There's also a little new star rating form on each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, love letters, hate mail, whatever else, to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening.